Well, hello, everybody, and welcome. Uh, this is the uh, voice of Christian Israel, and uh, I'm not actually the official voice of Christian Israel because uh, regular listeners will know that the official voice of uh, Christian Israel is, of course, Pastor Eli James. Um, but today he's hither, thither, and yon. I don't know quite where he is, but he's on some kind of a, a roaming trip. So bloodlines, unfortunately, didn't occur earlier today. Um, and I think that's part and parcel due to Eli... Uh, being separated from his computer in some strange and interesting manner, which hopefully he's chuckling about right now if he's catching this. And if not, I can uh, I can tease him about it later on. But, um, yeah, so he's been travelling around a bit. There was no bloodlines, unfortunately, a little bit earlier today. However, I did a quick call around and wanted to uh, just uh, give notice to Pastor David Martins. And uh, we've been speaking a little bit before this. And uh, thought it would be worthwhile going ahead with the show anyway, because uh, we were trying to set a few things up which have not quite happened. But uh, David's with me now. David, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Paul. It is uh, good to be on the show again. And uh, as usual, on a Sunday afternoon uh, in in South Africa, uh, it is excellent weather. We've had some rain after a long period of drought in uh, the town of Oatswaran, where I live, and it's a town that is uh, well known for its ostriches. And even it's the what? ostriches were suffering. <laughs> is it? Ostriches. Is it really? Yes. Oh, wow. So do you have ostrich, well, eggs? Do you have ostrich eggs for breakfast? No, no, pasta. We, we don't eat ostrich. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, but yeah, I just think it would be an incredibly large egg for breakfast, wouldn't it? You'd only need one that, ostrich egg, surely, to do enough scrambled eggs for a family of four, surely. So, uh, but, an ostrich egg is equivalent to about 24 eggs, and it was added uh, hen's eggs. So, um, it, it's, they're quite large, and uh, uh, I've seen quite some big ones of these. In fact, some of the shops that uh, we have here uh, sell these over the counter yeah. so instead of uh, walking into the shop and buying a dozen of eggs you buy an ostrich egg and you have two dozen eggs uh, in one <laughs> such a gigantic omelette i mean that seems a little bit harsh doesn't it how frequently do ostriches lay eggs then are you are you up to speed on on this uh boston uh, sorry paul they they uh, actually lay two to three eggs at a time oh really and, okay uh, Yes, and and um, uh, I, I think there's about uh, about two years before they uh, lay eggs again, but uh, or b- before they 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 have um, uh, well, it's quite a, a very lucrative um, uh, product to market because of the fact that they uh, they duplicate themselves in a matter of uh, a, a relatively short period. Um, Quite, quite uh, uh, easily because they, they, their survival rate of the uh, chicks are quite high. So uh, unless, of course, they are they disease-ridden from time to time. We have bird flu, and uh, uh, they have to get rid of numbers, quite large numbers of these birds. But uh, 
of course, in the olden days with hats and with uh, ostrich feathers, uh, these, uh, there was a lucrative market for uh, ostrich feathers. Uh, today, they use the feathers for dusters, feather dusters. There's not much other use for them. <laughs> I like that. I, I think there's a few ostriches running around the home counties, you know, here outside London. I'm sure there are. They, they, they set up ostrich farms about 20 years ago. I remember somebody say, it was thinking of investing in them. He said, we must get into the ostrich farming business. I went, I don't think so. You know, chickens are big enough for me, really. But uh, we went to see some ostriches. And they're pretty big things, aren't they? Yeah, but the feathers, wow, interesting. So are, are you still, would we say that you're still the man on the cape, or are you not on the cape anymore? Um, Paul, I, I'm about 450 kilometers from Cape Town at the moment. Right. Um, really, very close to a coastal town called George, which right. is um, not very far from South Africa's Bay of Plenty, Jeffreys Bay, and... Uh, very close to Mossel Bay, which is uh, uh, very close to Mossel Bay, which is um, uh, uh, one of the loading points uh, in, in, in South Africa for uh, South Africa's petroleum and gas off the coast of South Africa. Of course, this isn't very uh, known, but we do produce uh, petroleum gas. Uh, and there's a refinery at Mossel Bay as well, but um, I think everything that's produced local, lo locally is uh, sent, uh, is exported. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So you, you've just moved recently, and... Um, uh, that's correct. Yeah, sorry, I just had a little message there, David, just distracted me. But uh, So you've just moved recently, yes? Relatively recently? Oh, um, well, we, we moved... Um, at the beginning of December. All right, okay. Well, that is pretty recent then, as far as I'm concerned. It is yeah. recent. Uh, we, yeah. We're still busy hanging uh, pictures and um, mirrors and things, but uh, it's it's we, we've managed to uh, at least settle uh, lovely. We, we're thoroughly enjoying where we're staying. Um, we've uh, very close to, to town. One of the things that really got us down in Cape Town was the immense level of traffic uh, uh, my my son was um, at, at a school right underneath or right at the foot of Table Mountain which yep. was only about 32 kilometers from where we lived and uh, uh, like on one particular day I had to go and fetch him from school I thought well if I leave at 10 past 3 it would get me to the school way in time for him to uh, or to get collect him at 4 o'clock However, uh, gotcha. I, ma I only managed to get to his school at about 10 past 6, and then we turned around to go back home, and we only arrived home at about quarter past 8. Right. So uh, traffic is, is really a, a, a massive uh, hampering to uh, uh, really, you know, to even to consider. I can't believe it, really. Say, it's a country so big, your country so big in comparison to over here, and you're still getting traffic jams. What's going on, David? It's outrageous. Well, well, very, very silly. Very silly. Traffic now, in the Cape, because of the, the particular way in which uh, Cape Town has developed, uh, every major artery in, in Cape Town becomes a massive uh, uh, traffic block um, every morning and every afternoon, uh, big times. And uh, even though many people have, uh, you, you know, they work what we call um, uh, uh, a split time or... Um, where they start 
perhaps at six o'clock in the morning and they leave at three in the afternoon instead of starting at eight and leaving at five. Yeah. Um, they, uh, the traffic is still a major problem. But and other also than the traffic, course, are you, other than the traffic, are you happy where you are then? Is it a better situation for you? Well, we, we are at the moment. There's, uh, we walk to town. It's a five-minute walk to town. We, we, uh, if you stop at the stop street and you wait for two cars to pass, that is the traffic uh, <laughs> snarl that you end up with, um, oh, right. which That's is absolutely bad. fantastic. We, we, yeah. we, uh, we have at least a very large level of freedom of movement without having to spend hours in the traffic. Okay. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. great. So, we, we, when we were speaking a little bit prior to the start of the show, we, uh, you potentially had somebody lined up, but uh, technically I think they can't make it today. So hopefully, maybe when Eli returns, you'll be able to bring that guy back in. That would be good. Um, yes. But um, you, there was something, obviously, I've not had much time to prepare for this. So terribly sorry, dear listeners, but uh, we thought it was still worthwhile going ahead anyway because it's... Uh, it's the yeah. right thing to do. Um, and, you know, obviously, if your guest had turned up, it would have been great. But it doesn't really matter. It'll be great when he does turn up. So it's just a technical snafu, isn't it? But there was something that you wanted to sort of touch upon. I mean, I don't know if you're following through on the thing that you discussed with Eli from last week. I'm sorry to uh, be so ignorant of situations. I, I don't know what, what it's no, like for no. you, David. I, I find that there is only so many minutes in the day, and I would love to listen yeah. to everything, but I just I just can't. It's just not possible anymore. I have to sort of stop. Absolutely. You know, it's tricky, Absolutely. So. Uh, it is really because uh, one is basically bound uh, either by your to, to your computer to listen or uh, uh, making use of your cell phone. In which case, you end up most probably with uh, spending some time on your on telephone calls, missing a lot of it. In any case, yes, uh, yes. Um, all these a a document that I've had on my computer for quite some time, most probably the best part of about um, uh, three to four years. Right. But this particular document, uh, the, the, um, the heading of this document says, who's running South Africa? And the reason why I would want to discuss it on, on this program uh, is it, it is so much in line with the, the um, programs that uh, uh, me and Eli norma- normally run on this show. Yes. Um, with, with the fact that this particular uh, um, a document reveals uh, that which is happening globally. And, and uh, as we progress through this, I'm going to read through uh, most of this uh, uh, document. And we'll just touch on some of the uh, aspects if you want to interrupt me. Yeah, uh, I think we will. I will. Tr- I'll try and interrupt you as best I can in the most appropriate uh, appropriate places, if you could forgive me. What year is this document from then? That would be interesting to know. What, what year are we talking about? When was it originated? Um, Paul, there is. Uh, let me just go to the end, and we can see um, if uh, uh, there is a date on it. It seems like. Uh, oh, uh, excellent! I've I've got a a. Um, uh, it originated in Australia, and I've got a a link, uh, uh, an internet link, a page link that I'm going to drop uh, for you. Uh, I tried to copy this document, but... Uh, sure, that would um, be great. That would be good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop this uh, um, link for you, and you could perhaps um, grab um, a, a copy of the document off... Uh, can you believe it? My 
uh, all I have is a bunch of squares and etc. But um, uh, in, in any case, what, what we have is uh, on this document is, um, I cannot believe that it's doing this to me. Um, <laughs> what's going on? Is your computer giving, having a hissy fit? Is that what's happening? Um, I've, I've had two computers act over the past three and a half to four months. Right. And um, with, with somebody demanding um, 800 American dollars uh, as a hostage fee for... Uh, um, and, and what I've done is I've, I've managed to recover the one computer. I'm still busy in the process of uh, recovering the other one. And I see that this is now still a derelict from the uh, hacking of my computer. Uh, if I try and copy some text, uh, it actually scrambles it for me. And uh, right. uh, what, whatever I paste is just, uh, it's, it's something that I've just noticed now. Um, and I don't know whether it is because of uh, uh, the fact that it is on a... Do you have the title of the document? I could probably find it anyway whilst you're going through it. As long as you, can you still read it? I mean, that's what I was trying to check on. Yes, I, I, I can oh, yeah. re, still read it. Uh, let me... Give me the title because um, I'll probably find it whilst you're reading. Don't worry, that's great. You know, So if you can't send it to me, that's fine. But if you fire it at me now... And, it, uh, it is HTTP. Oh, yeah, okay. Colon forward slash forward slash. Yep. www. Yes. Dot Bible Believers. Bible yeah. Believers. Yeah. Dot org. Yep. Dot org. Uh, dot au. Dot au. Okay. Okay. And um, the, um, the, the the information that I, whatever I read on this, and, and uh, as I mentioned to you, I only stumbled over this uh, document earlier today. Um, and uh, if I could start reading from it in the meantime, uh, have you ever heard of the South African Institute of International Affairs? They've been running South Africa for nearly 100 years. This is what the document says. Right. During the first two-thirds of the 19th century, the interest of European states in overseas expansion reached its lowest ebb in several centuries. This period of relative disinterest did not last out this century. Suddenly and almost simultaneously, between 1870 and 1900, the states of Europe began to extend their control over vast, vast areas of the world. Historians generally agree that the late 19th century European expansion was one of the great events of world history. Conspicuously right. absent from the history books is mention of a small secret society of men who played a significant role in the sponsorship of the historical events. This secret society would conquer South Africa. They would use the money they had plundered and techniques and methods learned to grow into a worldwide organization that continues to shape world history to this day. Between 1910 to 1915, this secret society evolved into an international group of co-conspirators called Round Table Groups. Set right. up in seven nations, Britain, South Africa, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, India, and the United States. The American and British branch, branches of the secret society were formally established at a meeting held at the Hotel Majestic on 30th of May 1919. 
the men who attended the meeting were British and American secret society members who were members of the British and American delegations to the Paris Peace Conference. The meeting resulted in the establishment of the Institute of International Affairs. The British branch became the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and the American branch became the Council of Foreign Relations. This is when did you say? 1919, David? That's 1919, 30th of May 1919. All right, so this is the year of also the, the Treaty of Versailles, and it's after right, straight, right. straight after World War One. Okay, gotcha. Yep. The, um, then it says the British branch became the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and the American branch became the Council of on Foreign Relations. Branches in other nations are usually called British, Canadian, New Zealand, Australian, South African, Indian and Netherlands Institute of International Affairs, or Japanese, Chinese and Russian Institutes of Pacific Relations. The branch organizations have headquarters and membership lists. Membership is by invitation only. There are less than 3,000 members in any one nation and less than 60,000 members worldwide. Yet the members of the organization control one half and three quarters of the world's industrial and financial assets. They occupy top positions in the various branches of government. They control the news agencies and television networks. They head the largest law firms, direct the largest private foundations, are presidents of the most prestigious university, uh, universities and hold top commands in the military. They determine the destiny of their nations and other nations throughout the world. John Dewey, the philosopher and educator, writes a good description of the type of men who belong to the Council of Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and their branch organizations in other nations. That's interesting, though, there, David. John Dewey, the philosopher and educator. I think to call him an educator is really stretching it a bit. <laughs> yeah. He was a, he was a dumber downer. He was the first one of the first great let's dumb down the the so-called education system. That was his role, wasn't it? And he was an ardent internationalist, probably a commie really, I suppose. But uh, yeah, well, I always like the way they give themselves say. these titles, you know, like philosopher, well they're a waste of time and an educator. <laughs> well, he certainly wasn't that. Yeah. But carry on. Sorry, I'm just going to bark a little bit when no I say No problem. Things. You're welcome yep. to interrupt yep. at any time, Paul. Mm-hmm. Meantime, there are certain practical men who combine thought, um, sorry, thought and habit, uh, and who are effectual. Their thought is about their own advantage, and their ha- habits correspond. They dominate the actual situation. They encourage routine in others, and they also subsidize such thought and learning as are kept remote from affairs. This they call sustaining the standard of the ideal. Subjection they praise as team spirit, loyalty, devotion, obedience, industry and law and order. But they temper respect for law, by which they mean the order of the existing status. On the part of others with most skillful and thoughtful manipulation of it in behalf of their own ends. While they denounce as subversive anarchy, signs of independent thought of thinking for themselves on the part of others least such thought disturbs the conditions by which they profit they think quite literally for themselves that is of themselves this is the eternal game of the practical men 
Hence, it is only by accident that the separate and endowment, endowed thought of professional thinkers le leaks out into action and affects custom. Uh, that's quite a, a lengthy. Um, it is. It's quite a tortuous it, thing as well, isn't it? I mean, it's, they, very, they use very clumsy language at times to explain things. Th I they think. do. Very, and that and was I'm, extremely I'm, clumsy. Not you, but the, the actual writing is sort of. They use all these sort of you know multiple qualifiers and uh, within within sentence structures, and it, it ends up sort of putting you to sleep, really. But actually, yeah. not really. You know what I mean? But uh, that's what. It, yeah. It's just the way that they marshal language. But, but yes. But, but but then, as as we know, the Jews they like to scramble things for their benefit. Um, yeah. Now. now uh, the, the the writer will. I'm, I'm not sure who's the writer of this. It's uh, just that uh, um, when we when we spoke or when we discussed the fact that uh, Eli had been separated from his computer, we um, one of the options that we could have had was a, a talk with a one of my friends who is a very keen video videographer. Uh, he has visited quite a number of um, the concentration camps throughout South Africa and he has made video available for uh, um, Boer people. Well, uh, Paul, the, the sad thing about the history in South Africa is when uh, the, the whites were still in control, the Boers were subjugated to the Cape Dutch Afrikaners. And what we didn't realize at the time was that the history was adapted to make the the Cape Dutch Afrikaners look good. Mm -hmm. And of course, they were they, the, the Cape Dutch Afrikaners are always pointing fingers to the British and saying, oh, the English uh, came and destroyed our country. The English came and brought about um, uh, integration, uh, not integration, well, um, racial integration. And that was why Vervoort. Uh, had set up um, separation or uh, uh, apartheid, yeah. and and the the Cape Dutch uh, seemed to um, uh, the, the, they seemed to use every opportunity to to uh, pretend or to, sh to 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 point finger at the British for the Anglo Boer Wars. And, What's the difference, uh, David? Between obviously, you know, here's me with my clumsy mind, right? But when you when someone says the word Boer to me, I actually think of the early Dutch settlers. But am I mistaken in that? Are we talking about the, the Boers yes. of the first wave yes. of Dutch, or, or were they a different breed altogether than the the Dutch Cape people that you're talking about now? Um, Boer, yes. Um, if we if we can jump back to sixth sixth of April, sixteen fifty two. I can. Uh, the, <laughs> I'm the there. First people well, that was when Jan van Riebeek, a Dutch, uh, what they called a Koopman, in, in other words, a buyer, um, arrived at the shores of Cape Town along with uh, 96 Dutch men, mm -hmm. uh, or they came from Holland, and everybody thinks that they were Dutch, but they were, um, they, they had settled in Holland after being, well, well, as part of the Dutch East Indian Company, right. the Dutch East Indian Company was formed by 10, um, what everybody believes to be 10 Dutchmen, mm -hmm. whom were individual traders, and they had 
utilize the trading route between Europe and the East and the Far East through overland, basically. And uh, but what many people don't realize is that these um, the the descendants or, or, or the, the the predecessors to uh, these people were in fact um, Gazarian Jews, and they had uh, trodden the the the, the um, trade route between the Far East, the East, and then, of course, um, Europe. But yeah. many people are being misled by the fact that they the only thing that they say that they was traded was spices. So they called this the spice route. That's right. But, yes. But the spice route was not just for spices. They also traded opium. And... Um, this the, is when the, we're talking. These, when did you say this date was? 16, 1645, did you say? 1652. 1652, okay. Was when Jan van Riebeek arrived with 96 men. But prior to that, yep. um, I think it was already in the 1400s where uh, the Kublai Khan and the, um, um, the Ottomans had closed the. They made the overland route too. Um, dangerous for a safe trading. In fact, the Kazarians themselves, if you go and do some research on the Kazarians, you will find that they have a, 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 a particular means whereby they um, they mark their target and then over a period of time they will actually kill the person that they normally let through their part of the land and mm -hmm. then they will assume the identity of that person and they will continue to trade as to that person. Now, many of these Kazarians, when the Spanish opened the overseas or the, the uh, seaward uh, routes along the Cape or past the Cape and also to the uh, West Indian Islands, uh, they uh, scrambled to the Spanish ports um, and they started trading over, um, you, you know, by means of the um, Spanish galleons and, and uh, ships and vessels. And of yes. course, when Spain got involved with the, with the um, war against France, or the, when the, when the Spanish-French war escalated, uh, the Spanish turned against these Kazarians and they actually ousted, or, and not just the Spanish, the Spanish and the Portuguese chased these Kazarians out of their country because of the way in which they were dealing and they were conniving and they were uh, subversive in many ways to the people of Spain and Portugal. So uh, then the the uh, Dutch opened the trade route via the Cape. Uh, and of course, when that became known, uh, these, um, and it was way before Jan van Riebeek arrived in the Cape, uh, that was when uh, these Kazarian Jews then uh, scurried to the, to Holland, the, the harbor, uh, the harbor, uh, towns of Holland, and uh, they then uh, teamed up. They, they were team, uh, ten different uh, dealers who teamed up, and they decided to form a company or a uh, uh, what was called the Dutch East Indian Company or the Verenigde Oost Indische. Is it the world's first corporation, which, as far as we're aware? Is it? It must be close to yes, it. Yes, it, it, no, that was the world's first large. Yeah, because I know that the, during the, I mean, the Spanish Empire was very powerful at this time, obviously because of the booty that they'd retrieved from South America, which made a huge difference to them. Not only that, but of course they were refining their feet 
after having yes. well you know emitted the uh, the moors even though it was several hundred years prior to that you know that was in the 1400s but it's still you know they'd had the moors in there for 700 years or something so it took a long time didn't it but i know that the uh, holland at the time was pretty much like the manufacturing engine room for the spanish empire there was a lot of stuff being made in holland yeah, Correct. absolutely. It's like now a little we, manufacturing base, was it? Well, probably more than a little one. And I suppose maybe they felt out of sight, out of mind. So go up to Holland, and that's what they did. That's exactly what they did. And they formed this uh, cooperation or the corporation called Dutch East Indian Company. And the Dutch East Indian Company was under the control of 17 individuals or directors yep. whom, was known, whom was known as the Lords 17 or the... Dutch version of it, the year is 17. And, um, uh, and, and of course, they were all Khazarian Jews. Now, somebody uh, said to me that there were only 16 of them were Khazarian Jews. The other one was a Jew that had um, emigrated from England to go to Holland. And, of course, that made the 17. But uh, I haven't had any confirmation on that. But I... Uh, I've reason, reason to say that they consisted of 17 Kazarian Jews who set up this corporation and um, of course they they plied the sea route around before they decided to actually set up the uh, replenishment station at, uh, in, in, at, the, at the Cape or the Cape of Storms mm-hmm. and that was when they when they chose to send Jan van Riebeek now, Jan van Riebeek was a quipman, and, and uh, having explained these, um, the background to it, uh, he arrived with 96 of, of, of men whom, uh, according to the journals, the day-to-day uh, diary or the journal which uh, Jan van Riebeek kept, um, they were no- 97 men, and they left uh, Holland on the 12th of December of 19, uh, sorry, of 16... 51 to arrive on the 6th of April 1652 so it was very close to a four month yep. journey yes by vessel or by by wind driven vessel uh, from uh, Holland to the Cape right now uh, in the journal he mentions that um, when they were of course the vessel can't get very close to the shore itself so they set off uh, on rowboats rowing boats to uh, the shores and of course, when these men saw the Hottentot women bare-breasted, of course, uh, one wouldn't know what was hanging further astray, whether it was the eyes or the breasts of these Hottentot women. Yep. But uh, within a period of two years, or just within two years, um, Jan van Riebeek realized that he had a massive problem because the uh, the Hottentot women were giving um, birth to so many of these now, I, shall I call them hybrid uh, individuals or babies? Mm-hmm. So he wrote. A, so he wrote a letter to the Dutch East Indian Company or the Euro 17, asking them to send them women. Uh, I, I mean, what, what what were they thinking after on on the journey of four months to get to the Cape and then not to have females or women coming with these 96 men? What were they thinking? Well, but I, don't, I don't know. Probably it's just they probably thought there wouldn't be too much use actually, you know, on the boat. I suppose to start off with before they thought it through. Maybe they didn't think they would stumble into large clusters of hot and top women. 
Um, obviously, they did, and that, that just sort of exacerbated the problem. I guess sounds like that exactly. But but one can can uh, without uh, fear of contradiction say one of the things that they started doing when they arrived here was to build a a, 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 a people of um, colors, a yes. people of color, and uh, of course when when uh, Jan van Riebeek wrote the letter asking for women to be sent. What the Dutch, um, or what the Euro 17, these Lord 17 did, they found 17. Now, I don't know why it was only 17, but they found 17 uh, girls uh, in a, in a uh, uh, what do you call them, an orphanage. And they sent these 17 girls to, to the Cape uh, from, the, from the orphanage. And these young girls then were, uh, well, they were each one of them married within a matter, matter of months, and then at least they were starting to bring forth young Dutch or baby Dutch babies as well. Well, it's interesting but, hearing you. You know, obviously, from different perspectives, that that little account sounds so rough, doesn't it? I suppose from a modern stance, you go, oh, yeah, get down to the orphanage, find seventeen girls, and ship them off, right? Which sounds a little bit sort of callous, sense. doesn't it? A little bit indifferent. But, you know, it would have been very interesting. I'm not trying to sort of make excuses for it because we just don't know. People have got all sorts of different... Our attitudes towards things just keep shifting all the time. And as we become sometimes, I, I suspect, overly sensitive to things, it sounds yeah. to me like an extremely pragmatic Dutch thing to do. I mean, I actually... Yeah. I like Dutch people a lot because they're kind of in your face. And if you're yeah. fat, they go, you're fat. <laughs> They tell you. Yeah, I quite yeah, like that. I actually find that yeah. a more robust way. That I always think of them as sort of right in your face. They come up and say stuff, and there's a sort of brassiness about them, which I really yeah. do like. And maybe they would, um, that was it. They just said, "Well, you can either stay as a, in an orphanage, and or you can go down there and have a great." And they went, "Yeah, we'll go." You, you never can tell, can you? I wonder. It would have been good yeah, to be a absolutely. fly on the wall on something like that. Now that then um, is is a basic briefing on. Uh, the, the the way in which they arrived. Now there was a continuous flow of ships, parcels, or vessels passing Cape, and uh, as they were establishing this replenishment station, the first one of the first things they built was the castle in Cape Town, and of course they needed builders. So uh, whenever they ran into a shortage of a particular trade, they would ask the Dutch East Indian Company or sent a letter to the Dutch East Indian Company on the next vessel to pass and mm -hmm. there were ne many vessels, French vessels, Russian vessels, British vessels, uh, etc. Uh, Spanish ves vessels passing around the, the Cape of Storms yeah. and um, many of those vessels also stopping at the replenishment station because um, they, they would get fresh food and fresh meat etc. that they could now take for the rest of their journey. It was quite a long journey Yes. Uh, all the way from Europe uh, through to the um, uh, the next stop, of course, from uh, the, from the Cape was either Mauritius or uh, Madagascar, okay. and uh, of course the Dutch East Indian Company had already established uh, bases at um, Mauritius and also at Madagascar, also in Ceylon, also in places like um, the current uh, Pakistan, the current India, the current uh, Bangladesh. And then, of course, the Malaysian, large portions of Malaysia were controlled and, and governed by the Dutch East Indian Company, known as, um, as the, 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 uh, 
and then also Indonesia. Uh, now, I I had the opportunity of visiting one of these uh, coastal towns in um, Malaysia called Malacca, uh, and and the uh, there's so much of the Dutch that you can see in the uh, the way in which these uh, houses were built, uh, very much Dutch style houses, uh, Dutch style buildings, and also. Um, a lot of the language of the uh, Malaysians and the Indonesians. Now, I had the opportunity of uh, also going to Indonesia, um, uh, a city by the name of ben Bandung. And, uh, in say that Malaysia, again. Go on, say that again. I like Ban the way you say that. Say that again. It's called Bandung. Bandung. B-A-N-D-U-N-G. Okay. It's not It's not very far from, uh, from, from uh, Jakarta itself, but uh, uh, it is... Uh, um, of course, Indonesia is a very elongated island or a series of over a thousand islands, if I can recall. Yes. And uh, Bandung is not very far from um, a very popular um, volcano. In fact, the volcano erupted not so many years ago um, after my, my visit there. But um, you can see the effect or the, the influence that the Dutch had on these people in their development, etc., and also, they, they, their language contains a large number of Dutch words. I found that uh, there were many things that I could associate with, in terms of my Afrikaans, with, which is very closely related to Dutch. And uh, that, the language that they speak there, especially in terms of, for example, uh, motor car parts and things, the uh, silencer, which is uh, in, in Afrikaans is called a knal demper, um, which yeah. means it silences um, the 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 uh, a shot, or typically a, a gunshot. We call a knal, mm -hmm. uh, so it's called a knal demper. But in in uh, Indonesia, for example, a car silencer is called a knal pot, which is a very descriptive uh, definition or a descriptive name for a silencer. But right. that, by the way, in in um, now that so was, six, let's just get back. So if we get back to 1652, this guy goes yes. down there. He's got 97 guys. They start um, interbreeding with the Hottentots. There's a joke there. It's like yes. hot. I mean, in English, just to let you know, obviously we have this word "hot" currently in modern parlance to describe someone who's sexually attractive. But also, there's yes. an old British posh word called "totty," which refers to very attractive ladies. A bit of "totty." Uh, in this case, of course, they're hot and totty, aren't they? Really? So uh, this is this is a joke that will be lost elsewhere. But believe you me, I'm chuckling to myself quietly. So they go down, yeah. they they bump into the hot and totties, and they start to produce mongrels or whatever mulattoes. Uh, and then they uh, a little while later they go, this is getting out of hand. So seventeen. 17 girls come from an orphanage, and they begin to yeah. lay in the base, I guess, of what? The original Boers. Is that is that the base for the Boer people there? No, not at all. Oh. Not at all. Right. Well, that was um, the, the flow of the uh, what became the Cape Dutch, eventually becoming the Afrikaners. Now, if I can now take a few basis back again about five to six years after the arrival of young uh, young von Riebeck mm -hmm. in the Cape um, the, the uh, you, you you had these crusades in Europe and, and there were groups of people that were under tremendous pressure uh, of persecution rape uh, getting killed etc 
Now, many people think or they, they imply that it would be Protestants. Now, there were millions of Protestants in Europe that didn't flee. Why didn't those flee? Because if you look at the cathedrals and the large churches and things that have had been built in Europe, in Germany, in Holland, in Belgium, in France, in uh, all across Europe, you find that these churches and cathedrals were built during the time that these, um, the people that did flee, uh, that did flee Europe because of the persecution. Yeah. Uh, and those people that came, that, that, that fled Europe, came to, for example, South Africa or came to the Cape as what we called, or what was called free burgers. Now, uh, first of all, they had to pay for their passage and the, the way in which they got to the Cape was by virtue of the vessels of the Dutch East Indian Company because the Dutch East Indian Company also made available passenger space against the price. Now, right. very often it would happen that um, the, the, now, something that must be said about these uh, Jews, these Kazarian Jews, they don't like taking up arms. They normally get proxy uh, fighters or proxy uh, killers for them. Uh, and that we saw as, as well with the Anglo-Boer War, the Cape Dutch Afrikaners being Edomites, um, wedged the British into the two Anglo-Boer Wars because the Cape Dutch Afrikaners wanted the Boers to be eradicated or... Um, so the, the Cape uh, Dutch were basically the agitating force that actually stimulated the conflict. Yes, uh, Yes. in, in fact, um, uh, the, the evidence that I managed to get over or get across, um, Paul, was that soon after the... Um, the two conventions that established the Boer Republics, uh, or at least gave the Boer Republics the independence and the recognition of the Western world, were the uh, Sand River Convention of 1650, uh, sorry, of 1852, yeah. and the Bloemfontein Convention of 1856. Now, those two conventions uh, gave uh, what had uh, something that had. Um, the, the British were attempting to annex as much of the Boer republics or the Boer, the, the grounds that had been held by the Boers. The British attempted to annex that and the Boers, of course, um, negotiated. In fact, my uh, late mom's grandfather, Andres Pretorius, was the chief negotiator and also one of the signees to the Sand River Convention because they wanted to establish the and have the recognition of the world of the two Boer Republics, which of course happened with the Transvaal Republic and uh, with the Sand River Convention in 1652 and then the, sorry, not the 1652, but uh, in 1852. Yes. I'm sorry, I'm just getting... No, it's, so exactly, it's exactly 200 years apart, isn't it? Obviously, it's interesting. Exactly 200 years yeah. apart. Now, um, what I wanted to say is that the, uh, the, the free burghers that arrived in the country, in the, uh, that had arrived at the Cape, some of them arrived as free burghers. In other words, they could pay their full um, shipping fare or their, um, their, their uh, passage 
from uh, Holland or from from the Dutch ports to the Cape. Uh, but many of these um, individuals that did come, or the families that did come, had to not just pay the passage, but also had to provide a service to the Dutch East Indian Company vessels or the Dutch East Indian Company on their vessels. Yeah, they earned their way in part. They were in part earning their way right. to, to cover their fee, as it were, gotcha. Okay. That's right. Now, now um, the standard period of time that these people had to work back for the Dutch East Indian Company once they arrived in the Cape was a period of two years. What? Now, in that part, <laughs> Really? Two years. Wow. Exactly. Just for a four-month now, boat trip. Okay. It's quite, for a four-month boat trip. Yeah. Worked back two years. Okay. Now, my... My um, what we call uh, stumpfather, the, the the first Martins to uh, arrive in the Cape, arrived as a, as a soldier for the Dutch East Indian Company on the vessel. Um, when when he um, went to Holland to negotiate uh, the passage from Germany, because they were from Germany, well on the one side from Prussia, the Republic of Prussia, and the on my mother's side uh, from Germany, but on my father's side. When he came from Prussia via Germany to go and um, uh, negotiate the shipping or the uh, passage from Holland to the Cape, uh, the only way in which he could get onto the vessel was if he had signed up as a soldier to protect the vessel on the way because there were yes. uh, a lot of the sh- ships were also subject to uh, attacks from sea, um, what do you call them? Monsters, uh, um, <laughs> not sea monsters, Bri- but brigands, corsairs, pirates. The pirates. Yes. Uh, because rounding the Cape was, uh, oh, sorry, rounding the, uh, the the bulge of Africa was always uh, a problem in terms of shipping because of uh, the pirates that operated from small vessels. They to to this day they still do that. Well, obviously, uh, it's a major trade route. From what you were saying just a little bit earlier, you've got all these different boats, including Russian boats, ships, I should say obviously yeah. plowing this trade route. So um, if you're a pirate, that's where you go, right? You go where the trade to be robbed is, and that's what you do. Francis Drake did that when he chased the Spanish everywhere, robbing them. So uh, That's correct. That's true. <laughs> yeah. But, but when, when my, uh, my ancestors on my father's side arrived, my, um, he had to complete his two years of service to the Dutch East Indian Company as a soldier protecting the um, the building of the the, the houses, etc., Be- right. because the Hottentots would uh, frequently come and um, attack, and of course steal um, um, the the livestock, etc. But um, they were getting a bit hot under the collar, David. We could say, well, I could. Correct. The Hottentots well, were getting hot under the collar, and they were letting their feelings be known. Yeah. And there was there was a reason for that because when Jan van Riebeek arrived in, in in the Cape, he negotiated with the Hottentots to make use of a certain portion or a certain tract of land. Yeah. And that negotiation was in fact signed and sealed. And then when the Dutch East Indian Company found themselves running out of space, they just went ahead and they expanded whatever they wanted and they carried on expanding and expanding. Now, this started encroaching on the normal winter. Um, uh, the, 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 the Cape itself is in a winter rainfall area. 
Mm-hmm. So th- this winter rainfall area provided uh, feed uh, pastures for the feeding of the Hottentots cattle. So it's a critical area for, for the balance of, right. of life for them. Okay, right. So the, the, the Dutch started encroaching on the Hottentots ground far and beyond that which the the Dutch had initially negotiated for and that they had been uh, given the the uh, authority to utilize for the establishment of but the other thing is this now uh, the, the the Boers or the people who eventually became the Boers those that had been or came here as free burgers that were not uh, uh, they were not um, uh, associated with the Dutch East Indian Company at all they were not um, buyers they were not builders but they were uh, contracted for the purpose of the passage. Now those people when they had finished the two-year obligation to the Dutch East Indian Company they would now want to go and cultivate their own land and their, their own livestock and etc. And the Dutch East Indian would, Indian Company would actually sell these people that eventually became the Boers would sell them the land which they didn't even negotiate with the Hottentots. So the Hottentots um, would see the Freeburgers as these people are now grossly encroaching on the lands which they had traditionally held as theirs. Yes. And so, so the, the Boers, or the people who eventually became the Boers, were the first line of defense for the Dutch. Um, right. And the Boers were be, being attacked, etc. Now, if you add up all these things, there were so many things that the Boers actually found, uh, to, found found to be totally unacceptable, and that was what made of them track Boers. Now, track Boers are the ones. So, where, that, does, where does this word Boer come from? What's the, you know, obviously, if we if we look at Europe, I, I don't think of me knowing of any people in Germany, stroke the borders of Holland, Belgium, as Boers. Yeah, yeah. that's where I think uh, of that of the root of these people. So, where did this word spring up from, Boer? Well, just before we get to that, uh, oh, sorry, uh, okay. the 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 people who did come here uh, as free burgers and whom were called Boers at the later stage, they because they focused on agriculture and the uh, the the cultivating or the um, breeding of of cattle because that is what they did in 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 Europe. Um, what I didn't know, and what many people didn't don't know, is the fact that those people were evading or they were um, fleeing Europe because of the church, the, the Roman Catholic Church, as well as Protestantism. Because they did not get themselves into Protestantism, they looked at the church or they uh, deemed the church to be an encroachment on their Israelite belief. Right, and and of course, so so uh, so many of these Boers or the people who eventually became the Boers, um, they had Bibles, but they only read from the Old Testament. They didn't read the New Testament because the New Testament was the 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 scriptures of the very people that persecuted them and that killed them. And uh, if you don't want to accept the Pope as God's authority on the earth, then you would be beheaded, or you would end up on a uh, on a um, uh, 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 on a fire, and, or in a fire, or you would be fed to lions. 
Now, that which we learned in school history as the, the Christians being uh, fed to lions and the Christians this and the Christians being persecuted. If you consider that the first 400 years, it was more than 400 years before the, the church was first established. Mm -hmm. The church never was never established in the biblical times. It was established beyond. Because in biblical times it was Father Yahweh dealing with his people, his chosen people, and even the Messiah saying in Matthew 15, 24, that he had only come for the lost sheep of the house of, uh, well, I'm quoting my, my own words now, but he said, uh, what he said was, he has not come but for the lost sheep of the house of Jacob. And that means that he, did, he would not have come had it not been for the lost sheep of the house of Jacob. And I think it absolutely means that, David. I mean, Sorry. for me, I've said this before, probably in passing. Not that I, you know, I don't, I don't sit in shows that focus on this, but obviously I, I'm paying keen attention to it. But for me, it's probably the most pivotal bit of information that was never delivered into my lug holes when I was a small child going to church. I don't ever remember. Exactly. I don't ever remember the vicar standing up and going, "Now, here's the key bit that you all need to really remember." I come not yeah. but for unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel or the house of Jacob, and. Uh, I never remember that being emphasized at all. And, of course, if it were, it changes and shifts the entire context for where you are, what you're doing, who you're doing it with. Exactly. It's exactly. just, it totally shifts it. It makes it a totally different but, but, proposition all the way through, which, of course, it is. But if you see how the church had become the, um, the instigators or the executors of the... Um, persecution of the believers in the Messiah. Yes. Because if, if you go and read, uh, I've done some research on the um, uh, formation of the church and where it came from, etc. And it was, it started off with a circus. It was called a circus and it was established by Caesar Vespanius. Um, he, he went to, well, he, the, the, the Judahites had, uh, had started an uproar in Judea because of the way in which it, they were being dealt with by the Roman uh, Empire or the Romans' um, uh, uh, representatives in Judea. And they started an uproar and he went to quell the uproar and he killed so many of the, what we, we were taught, the Christians. But mm -hmm. it weren't Christians, they, they were Nazarenes. And, and it is a dead giveaway in uh, the book of Acts, I think it was Acts uh, 9, where Paul was... Uh, being opposed by these Jews, yeah. and one of the things they said about him when they actually uh, uh, went to lay charges against him at the um, Sanhedrin was that he, they called him, they said that he was a, uh, causing an uproar, um, and he's from the sect of the Nazarenes. I think that was a slip uh, that didn't... Or, that they didn't realize, or the Dutch, or the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, um, Septuagint, the, the 20, oh, sorry, the 70 writers, uh, or the, the translators of the scriptures, mm -hmm. uh, slipped, it slipped through their fingers. They didn't realize that. But, but if you go and do some research, now this is deep research, you will find that the, the people were initially not called Christians at all. They were not called Christians under, uh, um, uh, until about 400. 130 years after the last book of the Bible was written. 
Yeah, we have so, about th- just to let you know, Dave. We have about th- just under three minutes left. Okay, before the end of the show. Well, I cannot believe it. We, <laughs> but 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 it's it's so interesting. Uh, well, it's uh, one of those things that uh, if you start talking about it, the deeper you go into these things, you will find that um, uh, Christians only became evident in the writings of the Roman Catholic Church about 430 years after the last Bible book was written. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I think I think this period of history as well, you know, so, you know let's plonk on 1652. There's something about the 17th century that really needs, uh, for me anyway personally, a lot more examination because it's a, it's almost as if the modern hell all begins and springs out of that century absolutely Um, absolutely and it's not that long ago i I, i've said before the older i get the more recent ancient history seems so you know the roman empire is actually really just a few months ago in my memory there's something about your mind being a time machine it really is a time machine um what i I would suggest is um perhaps it would be an idea for us to uh, I know I've been invited on a few occasions already to uh, actually present my own show. But yeah. if, if we could perhaps uh, look at this in, in, in the very near future, uh, where I can con- can continue with this, because there's so much, so much to share. People, even the Boers, don't know about this. Yes. And, uh, of course, it's so interlinked with the scriptures that uh, it, it staggers the mind to, to, you know, to come to grips with this. But, it uh, does. I think. I think. I, I think we can do that, David. I think we can do that. I think it's probably time to sort of for us to wind up now. We've got. We've got just over a minute left. Can you believe it? It does fly yeah. by. I think. Uh, I'd, I'd just like to put a word out. I hope Eli can be reunited with his laptop. It sounds like a tragic love story that's gone badly wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> They've been separated somewhere along the line, and I, I, it just yeah. sounds so awfully sad. So hopefully, Eli, we hope you get reunited, <laughs> reunited with the with the laptop. Um, uh, we've got some more shows coming up. I can't recall what they are, but there's something coming up in about a minute's time. David, it's been great having you on today. Um, or it's been great for you to have me on, really, and, and sit in Eli's uh, in, in, sit in Eli's place, which has been good. Um, Excellent. Oh, yeah, fantastic. But and, greatly uh, appreciated for yeah. co-hosting with me today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's the playout music. It's been great. Um, hopefully you'll be back on next week and get that special guest in. Uh, Eli should be back next week. We'll say goodbye now, everyone. Uh, wrapping up here. And um, what's up next? Oh, I don't know. I think it's Brother Abe. Thank you. Thank you.